0: Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today, Pastor Rod preaches the final message in our Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses Sermon Series. This was originally preached on Sunday, May 1st, 2022. For more information about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Again, welcome to our service today. My name is Rod Heppel, and I'm the lead pastor at Sardis Fellowship. Happy May Day! It's May! Can you believe it? Surely summer is coming soon, so hang in there. It's our last sermon in our sermon series in Acts. Uh, We've been in this for a long time because we started back in September, took a break over Christmas, came back to it in the new year, and now we're wrapping it up. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned to you how much I love this story. I mean, I love the way in which the book of Acts just kind of unfolds, right? It's filled with all sorts of twists and turns, Uh, the way people respond to the gospel, some getting so angry and upset that they cause riots. And then you have like last week when Rob was talking about shipwrecks and snake bites, and there's just so much going on in the book. It's a great read. And I hope you have read it all the way through. But I also mentioned a couple weeks ago how I love an encore, like a grand finale. I love the way that at the end of a concert you have the encore, right? Or at the uh, fireworks you have the final big display at the end, the grand finale. Uh, Or the best of all best is game seven of a Stanley Cup finals when you win. But I I love that. And you would expect that as we come to chapter 28, the last chapter in the book of Acts, that we're going to have this sense that it's crescendoing. But it kind of ends very anticlimactic, quite quietly actually. It doesn't end with the Apostle Paul in a stadium in Rome preaching to throngs of people, and it doesn't have him going and standing before the emperor and defending himself. And it doesn't even have him being killed for his faith, which we know eventually does happen at the hand of Nero. But here in Acts, Luke doesn't record that. He doesn't end that way. For a number of chapters now, it's been moving in a particular direction. Paul is going to Rome. And uh, it takes quite a while to get there. But as it's coming into Rome, we, we see that... Um, uh, he was going to have his opportunity to be a witness there. And, and maybe I was thinking, I don't know about you, that that witness would look a little bit um, greater than it ends up doing. So the way in which Luke writes about their coming to Rome is like this. And so we came to Rome. And it kind of seems like it falls a bit flat. Like when you go to tell a joke and you miss the punchline. You know, It's subtle. So let's kind of take a look at the context of this subtle statement that Luke makes about their arrival in Rome and try to figure out um, what this is all about. So we'll pick up, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and now we pick up what happens next. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putoli. There were found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. All right, so after all the emphasis about the Apostle Paul coming to Rome, you can kind of see the lackluster way in which it's presented when he says, and so we came to Rome. It almost sounds like Luke might be a bit exhausted. This is taking a long time. We finally get there. And then in verse 14, you see how he says, it, and we came to Rome. It kind of is like, after all that journey and the shipwreck, and then from the island over to Rome, And we came to Rome, kind of wraps up, we got there. And then in verse 16, it picks it up again, kind of talking about now what it looks like for the Apostle Paul in Rome. When we got to Rome, Paul was under house arrest. And so people could come and go, he's chained to a guard, but he has a certain level of freedom to be able to live his life, although being chained to a guard 24 hours a day. One commentator pointed out the fact that, you know, we often talk about Paul being chained to a guard, but think about it through the eyes of the guards, These were guards who were chained to Paul. (laughs) I mean, day in and day out, uh, four different guards for six hours on each shift, hearing the gospel message over and over and over as people came and went. And I just think that's an amazing picture. In fact, we know that this had an impact because in Philippians chapter 1, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in Rome. Uh, He says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And so we know that those guards who were chained to the Apostle Paul were hearing that gospel um, over the course of two years in this particular time frame, over and over and over again, and some of them became believers in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus had assured Paul that he would arrive in Rome, which is maybe why he wasn't too threatened by what went on in the island of Malta. He knew that he was to go there to be a witness. And back in chapter 23... When we read about Paul in Jerusalem, and you know, if it hadn't been for the Roman government kind of interceding on his behalf and protecting him, he would have been probably killed by the Jewish people. Uh, but he was in the Sanhedrin, and he, he brought up the resurrection, and this dispute broke out. And after that, Jesus meets Paul. And, and he puts it like this. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so here we are, chapter 28. Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's only been there three days, and he goes to do what he always does when he comes to town, which is to preach the gospel. So here's how it's put Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now, if you've been with us as we've been preaching through Acts, uh, you'll remember that on all of Paul's missionary journeys going from city to city, whatnot, they were fraught with tensions and challenges as he presented the gospel message. And then towards the end of those journeys, he made one last trip to Jerusalem. He was taking an offering, actually, that he collected from the, the Gentile churches. He, he was taking it to Jerusalem to support those Jewish believers there. And when he was in Jerusalem this is where things kind of started to fall apart. Now, Jerusalem was his old stomping grounds. That's where he had studied to be a Pharisee, and that was home base when he was persecuting the way, the Christians, the followers of Jesus, right? And it was there that this unbelievable situation just um, escalated to the point where, uh, on more than one occasion, he was almost killed. It was about Paul's teaching, and it was about the Apostle Paul himself that these false accusations came, And so if it wasn't for the Roman government stepping in, he probably would have been killed. But his whole point to these Jews in Rome, he suspects that they've heard something about this. And he wants to simply say in his defense, hey, I'm actually innocent. It's not what maybe you have heard. And Paul was innocent. Before the Jewish court and before the Roman court, there were no charges that could be substantiated against him. He had not incited a riot. He was not preaching contrary to the faith of the Jewish people. In fact, on the contrary to that, it was because of the hope of Israel that he now had these chains. So let's stop there for a moment and just kind of talk about what is it that Paul has in mind when he says it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. Well, in a word, the hope of Israel is Jesus, the Messiah. He was the hope of Israel, and Paul had come to believe that because he met Jesus alive. And so he knows that he is the hope of Israel in the sense that he is the savior of Israel and all people. So looking backwards, that was the hope of Israel that this Messiah would come. And Paul's preaching this message so it is the hope of Israel and it is the salvation for Israel and all people. And that's why he's a prisoner in Rome. Paul was not preaching a new religion. Sometimes that kind of gets thrown in there that he was somehow preaching a new religion. But he wasn't. And he wasn't even preaching against Judaism. He was preaching the fulfillment of what the Jewish people had been hoping for. What their prophets had prophesied. What they were hoping would one day happen. Paul was saying, it has happened. And it wasn't just a temporary salvation. It was an eternal, permanent salvation. And it wasn't just for one people group. It was for all people groups. And that wasn't a new message. It was one that was there. That was the hope of Israel. That was the gospel that Paul was preaching. And that's what got him in chains. So back in Acts chapter 26, when Paul was in court before King Agrippa and Festus, and he's sharing his own story, um, his personal testimony of how he met Jesus and all that sort of thing... Uh, that, that was when the light came on for him, right? I mean, up until that point, he was just as zealous as any other Jewish person, persecuting those Christians, believing that they're a sect, right? They're, they're not the... They're heretics. That's basically how he saw it. But once he met Jesus, all of that changed. He realized that Jesus truly was the victorious Messiah of Israel. And once that happened, it was very clear what he was to do next. I mean, Christ even called them on this mission and he therefore was carrying out the fulfillment of the prophecies of Israel. And so it kind of goes like this. Let's read some of it. Jesus is speaking uh, to the apostle Paul, but this is Paul telling his own story. Uh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he says to Paul. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I, Paul, stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first fruit and pardon me, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his people, his own people, and to the Gentiles. All right, so what we see here in the words of Paul in a previous defense that he has before King Agrippa is that he's just taking what was in the Old Testament and saying, it's Jesus, Israel, you've been waiting, you've been wanting this Savior, he has come. It's Jesus. And so Paul is innocent of all of the charges. He's not preaching against Judaism. He's actually carrying out, he's preaching the fulfillment of the plan of God for Israel. But it includes all people. And it always had. To his own people and to the Gentiles, right? It's in there. Um, You might have heard as you read through the New Testament or might have heard someone's preaching on the New Testament that there's this phrase that's used from time to time, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And often it's misunderstood, it kind of sounds like favoritism. But it's really not. What it's trying to say there is that the plan of salvation that God had for all people came through the Jews. It was God's plan through the Messiah, Jesus, that all people would therefore be saved. And so it's always included the Gentile people would be saved through Israel. That was part of this hope of Israel. So Isaiah, oh there's a phrase, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And Isaiah 49.6 says, it is too small a thing for you uh, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth and I think that's really interesting to see Isaiah use that language because that's the language that Jesus himself uses in the theme of the book of Acts at the very beginning and he's kind of... Giving his disciples this charge, this commission, that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And and the understanding of the ends of the earth is that this is for the Gentile people. And this is the thing that has gotten the Apostle Paul into trouble. But it was always the hope of Israel that it would include their salvation and the salvation of others. And so what we see here is that Luke, in the book of Acts, he begins in Jerusalem, in chapter 1, which would be first to the Jews, right? And then he ends his story in Rome, to the Gentiles. I know that all of this might sound a little bit theological and a bit heady, but this is what I want you to grasp. The plan of God for the nation of Israel and for all humanity and for their salvation would always be through the Messiah Jesus Christ and that was Paul's gospel that he was preaching that's what he tried to prove that's what he tried to persuade people to believe that the hope of Israel was the salvation of the Jewish people as well as the Gentile people so let's go back to our story he's in a rented house he's chained to a guard and he's invited these Jewish leaders from Rome to come and hear his defense really because he suspects that they probably heard something and so this is what he says Well, he's told them, and now they reply. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people have come from there, uh, or none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, the way uh, Christians. Um, I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul wants. It's an invitation for him to be able to share the gospel, right? What is it, this sect? And what does Paul know about it? So they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even greater numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. The response of these Jews... To Paul's message about the kingdom of God, about what the prophets were teaching, and that it all comes together in Jesus, not everyone believed. I mean, this statement, this summary statement where it says some believed and some did not. Uh, some were convinced and some were not. If it, we see this as the pattern throughout Acts as Paul goes into, whether it's a Gentile city or into Jerusalem itself, wherever he's preaching to Gentiles or Jews, there are some who believe and there were some who did not. It kind of rings true today as well. Some hear the gospel and they believe, and others do not. You know, I don't know what it is. I've puzzled over this for years. People hearing the same gospel message in the same presentation at the same time, and some responding, they just know the light comes on, the penny drops, whatever your language, they get it. They recognize the fact that I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, he's the Savior, the Son of God, coming to the world, what he did on the cross, he did for me, my sins are forgiven, and they trust in Jesus Christ. Why for some does it seem to be so clear, and for others they don't believe? When I was a youth pastor uh, back in the mid-1990s, um, one Wednesday night I was setting up for a youth group, and a, a new guy to our group came out early. And he was helping me set up the chairs as we were kind of getting things ready, and it took me a second to kind of clue in, oh, this is a bit unusual. He's never come early before to youth to help set up. And so I asked him, why did you come out early tonight? And uh, without hesitating, his, his face just went beet red, and his, his voice kind of got a little stuttery, and he even had kind of tears welling up in the corner of, of his eyes, and he said, because I need Jesus. <laughs> he just got it out there. And I was like, oh, oh, wow, that's, that's awesome, you know? And he'd been coming out to youth group for a few weeks, and so he'd heard the gospel presentations, uh, he'd been wrestling with it, and he came out early tonight because he wanted to talk to me. So we sat down, I read some scripture with him, and, um, and then he prayed to receive Christ. And it was an amazing moment. He's still following Christ today. But not everyone's experience is quite like that, right? I mean, it seems sometimes a person like that is just so ready. And they accept Christ. But not with other people. Sometimes they've heard the gospel over and over and over again. And yet they haven't come to faith in Christ. They're still waiting, right? I have this one story back in the late 1990s. Uh, my wife and I were getting ready to go to Bolivia to be missionaries. And we'd been raising our support. And so... Um, Sometimes I just needed a job to fill in and I had an old boss who'd hired me. He had a landscaping nursery company and so he kept hiring me back to be a truck driver and whatnot. So over a course of about a two year period I was working at this nursery and I met a guy named Ken. And Ken and I became friends. I mean working friends. He was a couple years older than me. He was just a really great guy. I could see that he had it all together. I mean he had a degree in horticulture. Now he was managing this nursing company. Uh, He was making good money, enjoying life. He was well-liked by everyone. He was very thoughtful and a very kind and gentle kind of person. He was a better Christian than I was, except he wasn't a Christian. He called himself an agnostic, and he didn't really buy the whole Jesus story. I thought to myself on more than one occasion, how would Ken ever come to an understanding that he needs Jesus when it seems like he doesn't need to be saved from anything? I mean, it just looks like he has it all together. Now we had a good friendship and so we would often talk about my faith and he had questions and it was more of a cautious curiosity, that kind of an approach. As long as I didn't get too personal, we could talk about it. If it got personal, he backed off. Ann and I, um, our time was getting close to leaving for Bolivia and I'd wrapped up working at the nursery, but I wanted one more opportunity uh, to meet with Ken and, and to just share Christ with him one more time. So we went out for supper together and after supper we sat in his truck and I did my best to lay out the gospel one more time, to to kind of passionately plead for Ken, his need for Christ, and to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And with tears kind of welling up in the corners of his eyes, he looked at me and he said, Oh, Rod. And he politely declined my invitation for salvation in Jesus Christ. Our evening ended and Ken went on to Calgary to see his sister. I would be flying to Bolivia two days later. The next night I got a phone call. It was Ken from Calgary. Rod, I've become a Christian, he said. <laughs> I almost fell over. I said, what? How? I was replaying in my mind the words that he had spoken to me the night before, and now here he's calling me to say he's become a Christian. But unbeknownst to me, his sister was a Christian. And in Calgary, he was chatting with his brother-in-law, and he started to ask some of the questions that we'd been addressing the night before, and his brother-in-law, again, shared the gospel with him. But on that night, Ken understood Ken believed, and he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he, too, is walking with the Lord today. You know, what is it that some people are convinced when they hear the gospel and others are not, and they walk away? Paul's gospel about Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel, did not sit well with everyone who heard it. Acts 28, verse 25. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. Check out this evangelistic strategy. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seen, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Then Paul says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen, exclamation mark. Wow. Um, It seems like Paul had presented the gospel, and they were turning in, they were going to leave. They were rejecting this message. And Paul gives them a really harsh rebuke, a parting shot, And he takes the rebuke that Isaiah had given to their ancestors about their calloused hearts. Their calloused hearts towards God and his will. And he applies it to the Jews of his time that they too are rejecting God when they reject Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Paul leverages the weight of Isaiah the prophet, but he also reminds them of the divine origin of the words of the prophet that they come from the Holy Spirit. The message that these Jews are rejecting as they're leaving Paul's presence is they're actually rejecting God himself. It's not Paul's message, it's God's. For sure, this is a harsh word as they part ways, but there is a place for righteous anger and a solemn warning. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. You, the privileged people of Israel. You who have been longing and waiting for your Messiah to come. You who want the hope of Israel and you want this king to come. He has come. And it's Jesus Christ. And if you won't listen, the Gentiles will. I'm not sure exactly what the message is in here for us. But I know that we too can harden our heart towards God's will. We too can harden our hearts towards Jesus Christ and reject him and we shouldn't. So Luke closes off his gospel with that passionate plea, and then a summary statement that we find in verse 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Notice that, he welcomed all. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul welcomed everyone without partiality, meaning, you know what? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slave, free. It didn't matter. The gospel was for everyone. And he was faithful with that gospel message. He was faithful to preach it to the Jews and he was faithful to preach it to the Gentiles. Paul had completed the mission that Christ had called him on when he met him on the road to Damascus. And that's where Luke chooses to close off his story. You know, it seems to just kind of end. It doesn't conclude. I mean, we don't get to know Whether Paul does go and defend his faith before the emperor and we don't get to know the outcome of his captivity. Was he released? Was he killed? There's lots of kind of debate around how much more time Paul had before we read about his final days of life in in 2 Timothy. Um, But the idea here is that it kind of feels like it, it comes to a close prematurely. And there's a lot of speculation around, well, maybe uh, Luke's intention was to write another one, a third book. Because he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. Maybe he's going to write the second part of Acts, right? That's one theory. Or some others believe that maybe he didn't go further because the trial was still going on. And some think that maybe that was as far as his eyewitness account, the evidence that he had, um, went. And, uh, And so those are some of the reasons. But there's others that believe... When they observe the ending, that is actually very appropriate. That that it has uh, an intentionality as to why it ends the way it does. It for sure completes the words of Jesus in Acts one when he says, "You'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth." Right? Kind of completes that. And it even has the sense of Paul in this last chapter following that pattern of you know going to the synagogues and then going to the Gentiles, going to the Jews first, the Jews then to the Gentiles. So he kind of seems to be showing the The completeness to the way in which Paul handles the gospel. But there's another observation that seems to make good sense too. And that is this. It seems like Luke has left the ending of the book in an open-endedness because it's not the end of the story, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is still going out. So in a way, it's almost like Luke is challenging the readers to join in on the journey to write the rest of the story. Kind of like one of those uh, choose-your-adventure storybooks that kids have, right? Where you can choose this or that, and then the outcome varies depending on what you do with it. This has kind of been the application all the way through, right? As we've been going through Acts, we've been looking at the life of the early church and seeing how they share the gospel of Christ. And then we've been trying to say to ourselves, how do we do that in our own context, right? And now here's some of the things that we've talked about over the last, well, really six months. Not all of us, we said, are the Apostle Paul. I think we need to acknowledge that we each have a calling on our life and it looks different. Not all of us are extrovert personalities like his or educated like he was. But what we did say is that every single one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ have a story to tell. That we can share our own story of faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul to do that so no matter what you do, uh, whatever your degree of knowledge is in theological matters, that, does come, that doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm a living witness and a living testimony of Jesus Christ. And our job is to point people to Jesus. So in First Peter, he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's interesting to note that this verse doesn't say be ready to give an answer for every question that a person has about Christianity. That's not what it says. It says be ready to answer why you have hope in Christ. We all should be able to answer that. My hope in Christ is because I'm a sinner and he's my savior. My hope in Christ is because he is the son of God who came into the world, that went to the cross and died, and he rose to life again. In rising to life again, he conquers death. In rising to life again, he conquers sin. That's the hope that I have. You don't have to be a scholar to be able to point people to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Back in February when we started into the second part of Acts in this series, which was titled To the Ends of the Earth, I was challenging us to consider how we might become just a little bit more bold in our faith. I kind of said to us on that first Sunday when we started back up again, are we waiting for God to show up in power before we step out of our comfort zone? Or is God waiting for us to step out of our comfort zone before he shows up in power? <laughs> we have that tendency, right? You go, no, you go, no, you go. We want God to do something and okay, well then I'll act, then I'll follow. While well, he's done it, it's Jesus Christ. Died and rose to life and now he asks us to take that message And I believe when we step out of our comfort zones, we see God move. Now, collectively speaking, as a church family, I was also challenging us as we looked at this question. If Sardis Fellowship were to close their doors, would it have an impact on our community? Would they care that our doors close? Would they they even notice? Now, I know that for sure it would have a huge impact in our lives. But this kind of idea was to collectively say, how are we doing with the gospel message in sharing it with our community? in caring for those that are around us. So I want to challenge us one last time to consider, now as we wrap up the book of Acts, one last time, what might it look like for you to become a little bit more bold in your faith? Maybe it is having that conversation that you've avoided having. Or maybe it's just simply signing up to be a part of a Bible study group that, or a life group that you might learn more and be able to talk more about your faith. Or maybe it's just volunteering and being a part of the big picture of serving And how that works towards people finding Christ. Like through our VBS soccer camp that's coming up this summer, July 4th to 8th. All sorts of different gifts and interests that we can use as volunteers. And all of it helps children and families in our community to come to faith in Christ and to know who Jesus is. Or maybe volunteering with Pastor Tim in his Afternoon Adventures program. This spring you could go check it out and maybe join for the fall when they launch again in the fall. Maybe it means giving financially to the life of our church. Sardis Fellowship doesn't happen without the financial support of the followers of Christ. Maybe it's getting some theological education, taking a course, positioning yourself for God to use you more effectively. Or maybe it's a student, one of our youth, who are considering going to Camp Kiwanos this summer to be a part of one of the youth programs they have there. The step-out program for 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and the CIT program for 16- and 17-year-olds. You know putting yourself in a place where you're going to learn where you're going to grow where you are going to know how to share your faith whatever it will look like for you i know this you have to do something if anything's going to happen you have to take that step of faith and get involved it's not just going to kind of happen automatically as much as paul in his closing words was giving a very strong challenge to his jewish friends uh he was also giving a challenge to us i want to read those words That was my challenge to us. I want to read those words. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And so I ask myself the question, will we listen? And will we be faithful to pass on God's salvation to those around us? Because if it has come to us, it needs to go on to others. What am I willing to risk to be a part of writing the next chapter of Acts? Jesus gives us this challenge and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now it's our turn. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Luke, the fact that he took the time to thoroughly investigate these things, these things that pointed to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the resurrected Lord, and how that changed the world. It changes lives, it changes us today. And Father, I know that this message needs to be shared and we carry it. And I pray that you would empower us to just be bold in ways in which you want us to be bold. Maybe it is in conversation. Maybe it is in volunteering. Maybe it is in giving in some way, shape, or form. But help us to be faithful to pass on the message of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who has come to change lives. I ask for this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, God bless you. And thank you so much for joining us in this series. Uh, We're going to be starting in next week to the book of Ruth. And it's only four chapters long, so if you want to read it this week, read the book of Ruth and you'll be ready to go starting next Sunday. God bless. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.